Well, in everything that's been said and the questions and comments, um, there's an expressed concern about others and also uh, how that affects oneself. And in bringing this into our awareness that when we have this responsibility to others and we have a responsibility to ourselves, and meeting that situation with consciousness, with that's our task with mindfulness. Sometimes it's the case that individual personal turmoil uh, can dominate and we lose perspective, we think we're the only ones. When we're going through our own personal crisis, for instance, uh, something terribly unsettling happens to us, whether it's physical or emotional, and, and we get personally stirred up with all sorts of reactions, and we can lose perspective and forget that there's other people. We can forget that actually there's, uh, there are other people who suffer as well. We get closed off, and, and that makes the problem worse. <clears throat> and it's also the case that sometimes what's going on in the world, what happens, what happened last week, is so intense, so dramatic, so tragic, um, that we become totally obsessed with that, totally involved with that and forget about our own part. So part of our practice and, and part of our training needs to be to, to, to find, to feel for, to cultivate a, a balanced perspective of what's my bit, where I need to be paying attention to myself, and where I need to actually be paying attention to others. And if we, if we get this balance wrong, then we can lose perspective, and the consequence of losing perspective uh, is that we lose our intelligence, we lose our discernment. Now, um, in the monastery, I know we are, we are all aware of what happened last week, um, and it filled everybody with considerable sadness and, and fear, very real fear. However, all of us have, um, have made the effort to avoid uh, engaging too much media. Um, fortunately, we don't have a television, uh, there are some radios, and I don't know, but I think maybe one or two of the monks might listen to a radio, but I myself haven't listened to the radio since Wednesday last week. Um, because the presentation of what's going on in the world is not done with the perspective of people who actually have awareness of the larger perspective. Um, one doesn't want to get into condemning here, but you know we all know basically that that, that uh, the media industry is run by finance, not compassion, and um, and so uh, if we see that, if we see and we hear that, and we attend to that, and say, well, how does that affect me? When 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 we see this stuff, when we read this stuff, how does that affect me? And you say, okay, well, actually, that's not helpful. That's not helpful. It's not actually helpful to always have this sensationism, this. Um, excessive input 
um, and and limit ourselves to limit ourselves to actually, and this is where, as I was in the meditation, trying to point out the 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 need to recognize the power of our attention. What we pay attention to is what affects us, and also what we attend to is affected by our attention, and the way we attend to it affects it. So if we're always paying attention to to sensationalism, uh, even if it appears, you know, um, well, as it does, it's tragic, uh, the images that are around. But if we're paying attention to it in a heedless way, actually we're not helping ourselves and we're not helping the world. So my advice is to people just to see, well, what is your relationship to, to these things? Like all the problems like the problems in the inner city problems, the problems that you're talking about in Leeds and in many other big cities in this country, the race problems, uh, the immigration problems. How, what kind of effort, what kind of attention do we pay to these issues? Now, if, if we don't know that actually we're responsible for our quality of attention, then our attention actually, it's not even ours in a way, what is it? in reality ours, but it gets like kidnapped. And our attention is just, it's, it's like it's seduced. Our attention is seduced by, you know, the way the news is presented with the, the scintillating music in the beginning. The, you know, you hear it all around the world. When, when I travel around the world, I always like to listen to the news broadcasts of that country because you can learn a lot from the way the country presents its, its news. And, and there's a certain similarity to it. There's always this music that starts off that that really grabs your attention and then there's a certain intonation of the, of the speakers. And, but if you actually listen to what they're talking about, and I don't trust what my eyes tell me. I, I distrust my eyes. I've distrusted my eyes for many, many years. But my ears are very big and I really trust what my ears tell me. And so I don't really watch what these people look like because I know they're all tarted up with lights and makeup and so on. And, and, but what I hear with my ears, I can tell where they're coming from. And often it's not coming from compassion. Usually it's not coming from compassionate interest. It's coming from an attention, it's an attention to grab my attention. They're trying to get my attention. And now when I hear that, I say, oh, no, I don't want that. That's, I'm not available for that. And so I can make the choice not to listen. Now I would encourage people to do this, that to recognize the power of our attention. What we do with our attention has an effect on that to which we attend and also an effect on us who are attending. If we pay attention to the wrong thing too often, you get really depressed. Now, I'm personally um, very saddened by what's happened and uh, every morning I wake up with a sick feeling in my stomach and uh, I'm afraid. Um, but I don't feel that it's going to help me or the world if I ask somebody to give me a newspaper every day, I could do it. I could bring up somebody in Newcastle and say, please send me out a newspaper every day. You know, or we could listen to the radio broadcasts all the time. But I don't think that's going to actually help. I think what helps is if I register the sadness and feel the sadness and then learn to stay with that sadness, not react against it, not react against it, not to judge it, I, I think um, probably all of us will, well, I can notice certainly judgmental tendencies in my mind when I, I hear uh, people, some people, 
coming out, starting as soon as the thing happened. They're, they're talking about war, and other people are celebrating the thing happening and pleased about it happening, and and uh, other people are are uh, trying to stir up their own particular agenda because they want they've got their own angle on it. And I can see my mind come up with judgmental tendencies, condemning tendencies. But what's most important? from a Buddhist perspective, from a spiritual perspective. I mean, we could talk politics, but this is not a political meeting. We could talk psychology, but this is not a psychology group. And over here we're talking inner work, spiritual work, and we use a spiritual language. From the spiritual perspective, what matters is, what is my relationship to my sadness? That's what matters. What is my relationship to my fear? When I wake up in the morning and I feel a sick feeling in my stomach, what is my relationship to that? That matters from a spiritual perspective. Because if I'm not in a position of feeling responsible for that fear, well, you know what happens. I start thinking somebody else is responsible for it. I start thinking, you know, you frightened me. And when you frighten me, well, you know what I want to do. When you frighten me, I'll, you know, I want to get rid of you. I don't want you around if you frighten me. Uh, actually, there's nobody in my bedroom when I wake up in the morning. I'm totally alone. And, um, and yet I still feel afraid. So who's frightening me? My mind is frightening me. My mind is frightening me. That's our work. From this dimension, using this language on this occasion, that's our work. And whether it's fear, or whether it's anger, or whether it's sadness, to come to see for ourselves the power, the power of cultivating an awareness that is able to just hold it. Now, the gentleman down the back there, uh, whose name I know, but <laughs> right now he's a gentleman, um, you know, saying, you know, how can we just sit on our cushions, you know, accepting the way things are when things are, are not good? Uh, the reason we're sitting on our cushion uh, is to, as far as I'm concerned, the reason I'm sitting on my cushion is to remind myself of that power, to recognize and to cultivate the power of being able to hold even intense suffering in awareness without being defined by it. I find now it's very difficult. I don't know if there's anybody in this room who finds it easy. I find it very difficult. When I, this morning, I found it very difficult when I woke up and I was feeling sick. I said, why do I feel sick this morning? Well, you know, it's the same reason I felt sick the morning before. You know, I'm anxious. I feel anxious about what's happening in the world. And, uh, it's, 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 it, when you first wake up, the, the mind is not so, you know, <laughs> you're not so clear. You know? uh, even Buddhist monks are totally dopey when they first wake up and uh, heedless. And, and in that moment of heedlessness, I notice it's easy for the mind to start getting caught up and just saying, well, what about this and what about that? And, you know, and then the mind can just go, the next thing you know, you're, all, you're, you're trembling with fear. And, uh, and then you're starting to think, well, whose fault is it? You know, well, if they hadn't done this and they hadn't done that. And now, what good is that doing? Where is that taking us, that kind of, you know, our attention is, going, is up in the head and is going, oh. and that's surely what's going on all around the world right now for, for a huge number of people. 
And there, uh, to be honest, there's no clarity in that. Whether it's the tragedy across the Atlantic, or whether it's what's happening in our inner cities, or whether it's what's happening in Ireland, or whether it's what's happening in Russia, or whether it's what's happening in Northumberland, where still tragically um, farms are just disappearing in a day. Perfectly healthy stock. Um, Phil Hansen, who many of you will know, is still managing to hold on to his few sheep. But he looks across the valley and he sees just a whole farm is just cleared in a few hours. Not because there's anything wrong with them, but because, you know, one sheep next door maybe had a cold. Yeah. And so for some political reason, that means all those sheep have to die. Now, the grief, the sadness, the anger, the fear, the worry, the helplessness that comes when, you, when we witness these things leaves us in a position where you feel often, you know, I can't do anything about it. What can I do about it? And that's what often I've heard people have said, well, what can I do about it? You know, I, I'm, you know how can I stop these people slaughtering all these animals? Or how can I stop the, the, you know, the social problems and the vindictiveness? And, and what, can, what difference can I make? Well, again, this is really important to, to come to experience for ourselves that that feeling of powerlessness is actually, that's delusion. You know, we're all got the power to train our attention so as to be able to hold suffering without being defined by it, without becoming it to feel sad without being destroyed by the sadness, to feel anger, to feel anger without becoming angry. And now, when we become angry, intelligence is gone. You know, if you haven't seen that yet, well then try the next time you get angry to see how clear your consciousness is. You know, when we become angry, when we become possessed with lust, intelligence is gone, discernment is gone. I've always been impressed and grateful for His Holiness the Dalai Lama talking the way he does about the Chinese. His great defense and support is he refuses to get angry about the Chinese. They try everything and they will stop at nothing. But he refuses to get angry because he knows, not because he just believes, you can tell the way he talks, because he knows that when you get angry then your discernment goes and you can't function properly. Your, our actions are not actions of responsibility, of wisdom, or sensitivity, of compassion. Our actions are reactive actions. Now if we, can, if we can start to see this power that we have, well then we can feel individually responsible and we recognize there is something we can actually do. We don't suffer from the feeling of powerlessness. And I'm not talking about just sticking your head in the sand and, you know, feeling goody-goody two-shoes, you know, I'm so spiritual that you know, they can get on with their war and their massacre and their social problems and so on, I'm getting spiritual. No. But recognizing that, you know, where do wars come from? Wars are not created by, you know, by computers. Wars are not created by atomic war, atomic machinery. Wars are created by people. By people. You know, technology is totally neutral. That's one thing I hope that people might reflect on in this current crisis of, you know, what's happened, what's different now. What's different in this scenario is technology. That's all that's different. They've always been very angry, confused, 
people around and there always will be it seems however the power of technology means that the consequence of that anger and confusion can amplify it so many times and not only the action but then also everybody else can watch it at the same time and look at the result now if we don't understand that then we can say oh, this is this disaster is absolutely this is the ultimate disaster and we can actually misperceive what's really happening you know people talk about the world coming to an end believing that actually the world is what's going on out there that's not you know that's only one aspect of the world what's going on out there is only one aspect of the world surely the real world is the inner world that we live in our thoughts our feelings our fantasies, our memories, our perceptions. This is the real world we live in. There are people on the planet now who don't know what's happened in New York and they're just getting on business as usual. You know, I met somebody on Wednesday the day after who didn't know anything about it, they were just getting around, happy as Larry, didn't know anything about it until they heard and then immediately their inner world was altered. And it's the inner world that defines our experience. And so to recognize the power that we each have individually by training ourselves to be personally responsible for our involvement by exercising the way we relate to our own experience. Please don't hear me saying that this is going to solve all the world's problems. There is a time for talking psychology, there is a time for talking politics. But if we're not each in our own way feeling confident that there's something that we can do about it well then we do fall prey to this feeling of hopelessness we feel pathetic, we feel victims, we feel like we're victims somehow but when we feel what we feel, we're again with sadness or, or anger the very perception of I'm a victim of this This, this might sound new to you or even strange to you, you might even disagree with me, but that, even that perception of I'm a victim is something we can do something about. Okay, if you're, you know, under a pile of rubble or you're, you know, you're being hunted down or you know, you're really, and that's okay, you're an actual victim. But when you're in your own living room watching television or in your own bedroom waking up in the morning or you're sitting meditation and you have a feeling that you don't know what to do with, and then the perception arises of feeling victimized. Can we hold that? Or, or are we convinced by the way it appears? Now, from the Buddhist perspective, there's two dimensions of reality. There's apparent reality and actuality. <coughs> actuality, what Buddhists we call Dhamma, the way things actually are. And then there's the way things appear to be, which in Buddhist speak is called the world. Now, for most, in most cases, surely, we believe the way things appear to be. You know, like, you know, if it feels good, it must be good. You know, like, simple example, food. You know, you've eaten enough, but then along comes the cheesecake. You know. That is good. There's no question about it. You know, you know it's good, and you just got to have it. And you know when you have it, you'll feel better. You know you will you know, and then you have it and you don't feel so good <laughs> afterwards. You're wrong, absolutely wrong. 
Yeah. Or when you wake up in the morning, you know, th- there is a crisis around. This is actually serious. And so you say, I'm redetermined. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to sit before I go to work. I've got to prepare myself. I cannot let myself be defined by all this sensationalism that's around, this voyeurism and you know, treating this thing like a, a kind of fancy version of Big Brother. This is, you know, I'm, this, I want to make sure that I'm in, in a responsible relationship with my own reactions to life. So I'm going to get up in the morning and have a shower and sit for half an hour before I, I have to start the day. And so you determine before you go to bed for all the good reasons and then the alarm clock goes off and you think, well, I was working hard yesterday. I think what I really need is just a little bit more rest. It really feels so good. I, I know that I'll be much better when I have just another 10 minutes and then I can sit more consciously and be more responsible and more helpful to the world. And then 40 minutes later you ring and think, oh, blew it again. Yeah. We were wrong. You know, it, on the sensational level, what feels good, what appears good is not necessarily good. And what feels bad is not necessarily bad. You know, sometimes there are very sad and terrible things happen. Um, speaking personally, I, I know earlier this year I, I lost my father and, and um, with death, you know, it's not convenient. It was not the right time for my father to be terminally ill. It had been a very long and difficult winter retreat, very trying in many ways and we had a very important Sangha gathering coming up. And I get the phone call from New Zealand and Everything about it was difficult, um, including how much it was going to cost to get there. Um, it is peak season, but you know, this is your father, and you know they say he's going to die, and the monastery is not very well off, and it's been winter, and you know we've got this meeting, and there's everything saying you know you just can't go, but there's another poem that says you've got to go, you can't, you know, and I felt so frustrated, I felt really torn because. I thought I should, if I can wait for these, this important meeting, then I can go and spend more time with him. But then maybe he won't be alive then. And then what's it going to be like when I get there anyway? My father and I, we don't have a relationship basically. Whenever we've met for the last 20 years, it's always sort of shake your hand and, hello son, and that's it. What am I going to do? I'm going to get home and they're all evangelical fundamentalist Christians. You know, they're going to be praying and I'm going to turn up and the whole thing is torturous. And uh, eventually, I, I just 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 do it. And so I rang up the travel agent, booked a ticket immediately. The ticket cost nine hundred and fifty pounds. Ouch! I thought that's not good. But the other monk said, "Just do it." And so I did it. Two hours later, a check arrives in the post. Dear Ajmendu, here's a thousand pounds. Why don't you go and visit your parents? Last time I saw you, you were looking like you needed some sun. And they didn't even, she didn't even know that my father was ill. Well, they knew they were old, but, you know, so, well, that's a sign. So just go with it, you know, this resisting, holding back and worrying about me and the way things appear to be, you know, just, just go with it, do what's right. It's right to go and see your father. So, and that for me was, was a really important sign because everything went wrong and the flight was delayed and, you know, but the message was don't resist. You know, remember what the right thing to do is and keep doing it. And, you know, when my father and I met, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. He's, although he was only when I left, 
It was only a couple of weeks before he died, but his eyes were still bright and his handshake was still firm. And, and uh, I was very teary because I knew it was the last time I'd see him. He just looked up and said, cheer up. And I knew it was a real communication, you know. We had, we had met each other, I think for the first time really. I don't think we'd ever really met each other. And we met each other as human beings and he could respect that I'd made this effort to come home and see him. Of course, he doesn't understand my life. And, you know, it's too late for talking about those sort of things. But there was heart-to-heart, human-being-to-human-being connection. And so although it was very difficult, and on the apparent level there was a lot of things that really wanted me to stop me from doing it, that's just the way it appears to be. Just because something appears wrong doesn't mean to say it's wrong. Just because something appears painful doesn't mean to say something's going wrong. You know, when we lose something, we tend to very easily react to the way it appears, the sensational, the sense of, oh, I've lost something. But, you know, as soon as you lose something, that means there's an opportunity for something new to happen. Now, I imagine all of us at our stages of life have learnt that. But we keep forgetting it. Simple example, I remember 1987 when the hurricanes hit. I don't know if you can remember back in 1987, it's quite a while ago now, a serious hurricane. In Chithurst Forest, we lost about a third of our oak forest. I mean, a big oak forest, about a third of it, just matchsticks, just broken down. It looked like a disaster, this gorgeous forest. And at the time, everybody was just in shock. Well, now they all come into our Dummerhall Hall and say, where did you get this beautiful oak floor from? <laughs> you know, say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, just picked it up, you know. Inch-thick oak floorboards in our meditation hall with under floor heating. Now where do you have that? You know, We could never have bought that. And actually what happened in the forest, the forest was really happy to have some air to breathe again. New things are happening in Chitur's forest that haven't happened since, I don't know, the time of Drake or somebody. You know, I think he was the last guy who went through cutting down oak trees. Yeah. So the way things appear to be can be very, very deluding, especially with sadness. You know, this is a time when we all live with great affluence and great privilege. We do. The few of us. The few of us that live with this privilege. Somebody did a test and they they gave the results about if there's a village the size of a hundred people, only one would be educated. Only one would have a television. If you took from the whole world, only one would have the privileges that we have. You know, we're one in a hundred, all of us. We're very privileged, very fortunate. And, you know, the consequences of that we tend to take for granted. We, we tend to forget and we tend to think that actually we've got a right to expect to wake up happy in the morning. But how many people in the world wake up happy? How many people in the world wake up knowing that they, you know, they don't have to worry about food? You know, one in a hundred, maybe, wake up feeling like we do. And we're fortunate, we're privileged. And so not to make any judgment of that, about that, but to understand that when you live in this degree of privilege, then, you know, it sort of tends to creep on us. And we tend to think that when you actually do lose something, and you feel like the other 99% of the people in the world, you know, you feel like something's going wrong. You know, you feel sad in the morning, you feel afraid in the morning, you think, oh, it's a disaster. Actually, this is normal for human beings. This is normal for human beings to be suffering like we are at the moment. Okay, it's tragic, but this doesn't mean to say it's the end of the world. 
So preparing ourselves with an understanding of of the capacity we have for accommodating our life, even when it's very challenging, recognizing there is something we can do about it, recognizing that if we choose to discipline our attention in a caring, careful way and cultivate this here and now, judgment-free awareness, then even when there's real sadness, you know, even when there's real tears, not imagined tears, real tears of grief, that we don't lose perspective, that we don't send our energy out, we don't send our hearts out and project it onto the world, project it onto somebody else and ask them to take responsibility for us. Again, using an example, personal example of, you know, with, again with my difficult relationship with my family, I, for years and years and years I would go home and, and I would always think of all the things that my parents had done wrong to me. Until one day, one year, one visit, it, 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 was, it, it was a crisis point. I just was at the point that I'm never going to come home and see these awful people ever again. You know, be careful what happens to the tape. <laughs> this is being taped. Um, my parents are not awful, but that was the perception that I had because there was a block. And I don't ever want to see these people ever again. And it was, I just didn't know what to do with it until, I, would say, I was going to say I don't know why, but actually I do know why. The momentum of practice, the momentum of practice conditioned the arising of the seeing that you're just sad, that's all. You know what sadness is? It's sad, that's all. You know, when you feel, I know I don't mean that, I don't say that lightly, particularly at this time. When we feel sad, it's just sadness. To say it's wrong to be sad is extra. To say it's wrong to be sad is extra. We don't need to say it's wrong to be sad. The birth of compassion can only take place in sadness. The birth of compassion takes place in sadness. It doesn't take place anywhere else. It's not when you're having a good time. Mudita comes around when you're having a good time or when somebody else is having a good time. You know, you can be all having a good time. and Loving kindness, you can have loads of loving kindness when everybody's having a good time. You can see people being happy and you can feel good for them and with them. And you, know, you can see other people doing well and you can have mudita, empathetic joy and be pleased that they're doing well. But not with compassion. You know, compassion only happens when actually there's sadness and you feel sadness with others. You really feel it. Now I would say that actually if we don't have this strength of awareness it's very, very difficult to have compassion because what happens when the sadness arises you get caught up in it. You get caught up in it, you get confused and, and we lose perspective. And often, you know, you can start blaming saying somebody's done something wrong to make me suffer, to make me sad. This is part of the package. Life is sad. There is sorrow. Our responsibility and our capacity is that we can cultivate an awareness as a refuge. This is our refuge. You know, as Buddhists, you say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Sangha. I mean, what is this anyway that we're going for refuge to? And what good does it do us if you're faced with problems like between you know, the Muslim boys and the, and the white boys that you're talking about? What is this refuge? What good does it do? 
Well, what good it does is that actually if we understand the refuge as awareness itself, that is what the Buddha is. The Buddha is awareness that is free from any limitations. The Buddha is a person, yes, lived 2,500 years ago in India. Yes, the Buddha gave a teaching, which we call the Dhamma. And yes, there are committed beings who, who realize the value of these teachings and are committed to it, and we call the Sangha. That's the form of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. But the spirit of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, is awareness itself. What was it that the Buddha cultivated? And what was, the, what was it the struggles that the Buddha overcame? You know, the struggles the Buddha overcame was the struggles to free the mind from clinging. The Buddha still had painful sensations, didn't he? I mean, you know the Buddha died from having an upset stomach. And uh, you know, he had to put up with irritating monks, you know, like all senior monks do. They have to put up with irritating monks. And, <laughs> and you, you know, not that the Buddha felt irritated, but he did feel displeased. He didn't feel irritated like me. I get irritated, but... The Buddha felt displeased. He said, I'm fed up and I'm going off on retreat for three months. Leave me alone. You know, you've all read the stories. The Buddha went off to the forest and lived with the elephants and the monkeys because they're much nicer and trees are much nicer than irritating, troublesome monks. The Buddha had irritating conditions. He had rheumatism. It talks about the Buddha sitting with Rajagiri, Rajagaha, and, and sitting there sunning his back in the morning to ease the pain of arthritis. So the Buddha had painful sensations, but the Buddha's awareness was such that there was nothing obstruct obstructing it. The sensations came and went without any grasping. That's the difference between the Buddha and us. My painful arthritis comes and I can't sometimes let it go. It comes and there's a, that's my painful ankle, or that's my painful hip. Yeah. Or I get, I get, you know, irritated. I get young monks coming, causing me problems, not doing things, you know, not being responsible, and so on. And and these impressions arrive. Why can't that monk be more responsible? And that's grasping. And that's the difference between me and the Buddha. Our consciousness, our awareness, still has the habits of grasping. Now, when our habits of grasping become so thoroughly established, we get the feeling that actually there are actual limitations to our awareness. That's the feeling we have. You know, we feel like our awareness is literally limited. And the feeling, it shows itself up when you get that feeling like, you know this feeling where I can't take it anymore. Do you know that feeling? Yeah? Most people are nodding their heads. There's a few enlightened beings around sitting composed, but everybody else, the rest of us, we know what it's like when we feel, I can't take it anymore. Now what is, the Buddha never felt that way. Siddhartha did, the, the Buddha-to-be felt that way. I can't take it anymore in the palace, remember? He said, I can't take it anymore. All these dancing girls are too much for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here. You know, all these hassles, you know, Rahula, his son, you know, the problems, the responsibilities. He says, I can't take it anymore. There's got to be something better than this. The feeling of I can't take it anymore is the coming up against those edges of awareness that we have created through our habits of clinging. Out of unawareness, out of not knowing what we're doing, out of not seeing for ourselves what these habits of clinging are actually about, not even knowing we're doing them. 
but doing them so compulsively that we get fixed into this rigid feeling of I am inherently limited and right now I can't take it anymore. And then it starts coming out through our mouth, through our eyes, sometimes through our fists for some people. All of us are the same. It's reaching the limitations on our personal capacity for holding our experience. Now what this teaching is talking about is is not believing that could be different, but coming to see in our meditation, in our contemplation, in our practice, coming to see for ourselves this is what's taking place and to stop doing it, to stop doing the clinging. When we realize that we can actually release, inhibit the habit to cling. When we're present enough, when we're here and now enough, when our awareness is free from judging, taking sides for and against, and it is an impression of sadness or ill will, when our awareness is so free and so well prepared, then in a moment we can see that tendency to cling. And just in seeing that, hold back. Experiencing that, then we discover the feeling of individual responsibility. That clinging is something I'm doing. It's not happening to me. I'm not a victim to my habits of clinging. I'm not a victim to my contracted feeling of limited capacity for living in this world. I'm the doer of it. I am the doer of this limitation. And in so seeing, we experience a little bit of an increase, of an opening. We experience there's an increased feeling of freedom because just for a moment we stop doing the limitation and our awareness expanded a little bit and we feel good, we feel very good and we hopefully understand what's happened and we don't cling to that. Well actually that's wishful thinking because we probably do cling to that. Say, oh this is it, I've, I've expanded, I'm in an expanded state now. This is, this is great. Well it is great for a while but actually what happens because of our commitment to the refuge of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, which is limitless awareness. If we made such a commitment, if we trust in such a possibility, we're going to get tested. And right now we're all being tested. Right now we're all being tested. Not by somebody, there's nobody there testing us. We're being tested by life. We're being tested to see how do you hold this? How do we hold this? How do I hold my grief? If I feel that actually this is more than I can hold, then let's be very, very careful with that. Let's not get judgmental of ourselves or the world. Let's consider very carefully what this feeling of limitation that we impose on awareness actually is. It's a habit of clinging that we're doing compulsively. If we can remember that and inhibit our judging mind a little bit, then our awareness will expand. We'll discover for ourselves we've got a greater capacity for holding a greater capacity for holding more pain and more <coughs> suffering is a greater capacity for compassion. And that compassion wasn't born out of having a good time. It was born out of actually having a painful time. But with right mindfulness, with having prepared ourselves, we stay with it. We bear with it. If we lose it, and we only catch ourselves sometime later when we're, we're midstream just shouting our mouth off about how wicked this person is and that person is and, and these problems are all too much and this is just impossible. And you, you know, Well, when we catch ourselves, we say, okay, right, I lost it, just hold it. It's okay. 
no judgment. I lost it. Be honest. Let's see if we can be honest. Say, I lost it. I didn't catch it in the beginning. I didn't catch it when the passions flared up and in my limited awareness they then spewed out onto the world and created more suffering. As soon as you recognize, say, okay, I lost it. And just take a deep breath and be still. And if necessary, take another deep breath until we remember that, that we're doing these limitations on awareness that we experience ourselves to be. And there is something we can do about it. We can, with careful, disciplined attention, discover how to release out of those habits of clinging. And in my experience, my utter conviction is that if we do this consciously, a few times, it doesn't take many times, if we catch this just a few times, then the faith becomes really well established. We don't have to believe in nice stories about, you know, utopias and, you know, the Aquarian Age and, and just set ourselves up for serious disappointment. You know, those stories actually have their place uh, at certain times. But if we've discovered this capacity for holding suffering without clinging, then actually we can be with this reality, this raw reality, and even welcome it. Not like it, we're not talking about liking it, but we can welcome it and say, okay, I can meet this too. I know what my refuge is. My refuge is to the Buddha, to limitless awareness. Cultivating our refuges with consciousness, seeing, witnessing, feeling our faith, the roots going down deeper. Our roots deepen because of suffering, if we meet the suffering rightly. And then, yes, there's something else we can do in terms of bringing well-being, the cultivation of the Brahma-viharas, the reflection that you did tonight, and the cultivation of loving-kindness, the cultivation of compassion, but really with understanding, not just thinking nice thoughts, but understanding where does compassion come from? From suffering. The cultivation of mudita, of empathetic joy, really working when you're seeing somebody having a good time and somebody doing well, you know, being conscious and feeling well with them. Yeah, really working on that. But most important, also understanding the fourth Brahma-vihara of equanimity. Because, you know, these first three Brahma-viharas of, of loving-kindness, compassion and, and sympathetic joy, they can make you very, very sensitive and very open and very vulnerable to a lot of pain. And uh, if we don't have a stability that is rooted in understanding, then we can actually become very vulnerable. We end up becoming hypersensitive, actually, to be blunt. You become hypersensitive by having been becoming too soft, <coughs> too sensitive. Why the Buddha, as I understand, one of the reasons why the Buddha taught the four Brahma-viharas is, is this fourth one of the teaching on the law of karma that I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, abide supported by my kama, whatever kama I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. And the same is true for everybody. You know, when I stop and I reflect on that, I am the owner of my kama. That is such a refuge, that is such a strength. When there's a real feeling appreciation of what my actions, the actions I do, the actions I intend by body, speech and mind, 
these are the actions that I will bear the fruits of. And coming to know that for myself, then we can recognize it for others. That doesn't numb us, hopefully, to the suffering of the world. You know, if your heart is, is alive with, with sensitivity, with compassion, with kindness, then it won't numb you against the suffering of the world, but it will balance our hearts. We, can, we need to remain balanced because, you know, if, if you're not the one who's actually uh, killing the animals because they've got foot and mouth disease, if you're not the one who's manufacturing the, the killing machinery of the world and doing it, then, you know, then actually it's not our place to become devastated by those actions. Our task is to, to recognize the responsibility for holding a steadiness and a clarity of heart and mind so that we can stay conscious through whatever we have to stay conscious through. Now, without the understanding of the law of karma, I would say that's very difficult. I would say it's very difficult indeed. So, some people, I heard uh, a good number of people actually, uh, dismiss the, the teachings on the law of karma because they say, oh, well, you can't prove it, you know. Say, well, you know, until they had sophisticated machinery, you couldn't prove that dogs hear sounds that we don't hear. I mean, dogs can hear more than we can. That doesn't mean to say the sound doesn't exist just because we can't hear it. You get slightly more sophisticated machinery and you can, you know, test the sound. Oh, there's a sound there, but you can't hear it. Oh, that's why dogs do that, you know, because there's a sound, we couldn't hear it. There's also lots of laws that we don't understand. Our minds are, are, are as the Buddha said, drowning in sensuality, basically, this idea of if it feels good, it is good, if it feels bad, it is bad. The apparent nature of things makes our minds and hearts rather, rather dull. So there's lots of truths that we don't understand. Others less dull than us do understand and teach. And the law of karma is one of those things that, that the Buddha did teach and encourage us to trust in. Okay, we're not asked to believe in it absolutely and go around hounding other people with it, but to trust in it, to trust in that law of karma. And if we can contemplate the law of karma and trust in it, then we don't have to be afraid of saying, okay, well, there's a bigger picture here in this world of ours that's struggling so badly right now, there's a bigger picture. I don't know what it is, but I trust there's a bigger picture. And what I'm going to do is be very, very careful about my actions, because I trust that my actions will contribute to this bigger picture. Understanding this personal responsibility conditions our sense of responsibility for our own actions of body, speech and mind. So we're not going to be adding heedlessly to the suffering of the world. Yes, it's difficult, but it's not the case that we're powerless. It's really a matter of remembering where that power is and then trusting in it. So thank you very much for your attention this evening.